Welcome to the MBUK podcast. In this series, we'll be looking back through some of the moments that helped shape the sport of mountain biking. From the pioneers that paved the way, bikes that broke the tech boundaries, and the events that pushed the very limits of the sport, to the racers who will be forever cemented in our memories for their antics on and off the track. We'll even do our best to predict how things will look in the future. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your mates. And if you have time, please give us a review. What's going on, everyone? It's time for another episode of the MBUK podcast with me, Tom Marvin, and my co-host with the most host, it's <laughs> Rob Weaver. What's the most host? Well, I was going to say <laughs> co-host with the most... I don't know, knowledge of mountain biking uh, mm. going around, but uh, it's, it's Rob Weaver. in the bottom of the barrel, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, we I'm are. sure there's a lot better people out there to do this sort of thing. But, <laughs> hey, I'm here. You're here, at least. <laughs> so got... that'll do. <laughs> Joining us in this episode is John Aldell. He is, well, it's apparently the Global Director of Marketing for Marin Bike, something Big along dog. those lines. Big dog? Something Big dog. along those something lines, yeah. Not quite so exciting, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Something to do with, like, giving t-shirts away and stickers and whatnot great <laughs> i mean despite the fact that we've got marin adverts at the uh, start middle and marin. end of this marin. episode marin. It's, uh, marin. <laughs> is, it marin? is it marin uh, it's not our job to blow smoke up your ass all day john but um instead <laughs> we are going to talk about bikes that broke boundaries that is a plan for today's podcast that is so, a plan. What, so bikes? we're just going to list off all the Marins that have ever been made. Then. Basically, I think. And we do actually have a Marin on the list. Uh, we've got we, one right behind we've us. We've got one well. right behind us. It's, it's uh, rather it's, cool. Is that actually the one that's on the list? The, it is. The, uh, it's the not team the, it's not the Thai one, then, is it? It's not the titanium one, no. We've just got the, uh, the aloe one today. I think the, cool. the titanium one's a little bit harder to get hold of. Is I it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, do, we do have one in the head office in California. But uh, that's kind of, I'm not allowed to touch that sort right. of thing. We so, should have yeah. gone there. Hello, ground. Taken Jack. He's in charge of all of this. Yeah. Gone on holiday. Yeah. Well, we've just, we can't go at the moment because I think GCN are over there. So, <laughs> was that, am I not allowed to make that joke? <laughs> well, at least they're making a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey ho. Hey ho. <laughs> <laughs> the next series of the MBK podcast will be beamed directly from California. It sounds great. We'll just we do the go? same ones again, same episodes again, yeah, but yeah. in the proper historical setting. With a better tan. Um, oh. And burritos. And burritos from El Roy. Oh, oh, oh this yay. man's done his research. <laughs> uh, if you've listened to the Bike Radar podcast, which I'm sure everyone who's listened to the NBK one has, you'll know I do love uh, a Marin El Roy. Oh my is, God, don't you? Yeah. I bang Jesus. on about it all the time. Really that and does. a Lauf Segler. I just never shut up about them. I'd say the Marin you talked about probably more. <sighs> yeah. In the magazine. In the magazine. On the podcast. On video. Anytime we go out for a ride. <laughs> really? Sounds Honestly. like we should probably we should probably get you on. Well, I mean I did have I mean I do love it. I do love it. But you had one for long term tests, didn't you? I did, yeah. Had it for a I year. think that's still rattling around in the uh the scratch and dent pile, so maybe we can just send it back. <laughs> it was to you. pretty well scratched <laughs> if I'm honest. Oh my god. It was great. Was that a bike that broke the boundaries? That was a bike that broke boundaries for, for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, we ride a lot of bikes over, well, over the last 10 years I've been doing this, I've ridden a lot of bikes, and there are two that stand out, one of which is that, and the other is a, a transition scout. There you go. There you go. But as I said, we're not here to, you know, talk just about our bikes. <laughs> <laughs> as we much here, as we'd like to. As much as we'd like to, yeah. Should we kick off, though? With, it's a bike that is so important and so influential, but the Specialized Stump Jumper has to be up there as bikes that broke boundaries as being, what, the first basically mass-produced yeah. mountain bike. 
and I think 81. Is that right, John, roughly? Sounds about right, yeah. So that that's the baby blue one, is that right? I think Did so, I get that yeah. right? With like the forks with loads of rake on yes. them. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and it used a modified BMX stem and some steel bars, canty brakes. I think it had a 15-speed drivetrain. And it Suntour, was three by yes. five. Guess so. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, maths. Um, yeah, mental maths jam. Uh, and it would set you back seven hundred and fifty dollars. Seven hundred and fifty dollars in what? In nineteen eighty one. Eighty one. So that's quite a chunk of cash. I don't know what that equates to now. No, I reckon that would be in probably low thousands now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Three thousand. And then with the conversion rate to the Great British Pound, you're Great probably British talking Pound. about half a million pounds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although, although I think back then the pound was great it was so indeed. i don't know what how that changes the sum up or down but yeah very true probably down probably down you totally either way there were definitely people flying to america to get one to then bring it back like i've definitely heard yeah. that story several times yeah that used to be a thing back when i was sort of i got a crisking headset from uh from america we've diverged already we've done one of course bike. we have tangents yeah <laughs> why not half the price and that was probably what 12, year, 12 years ago, I say, I got a head, uh, Chris King headset for 60 quid. Anyway, have any of us ridden a bike of that era? Yes, I have. Go on, was it any good? Uh, no, it's absolutely horrific. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, it's, it's not quite the same, and not trying to kind of bring this back onto Marin already, but I've got uh, Marin's first version of that, so the Madrone Trail. Mm -hmm. I found one like online somewhere, I bought it, and I like doing a little bit of uh, really bad brazing in my garage. So I brazed on disc tabs onto it and thought, oh, I'm going to use this to ride to get sandwiches at lunchtime. Okay. So I've got disc tabs on it with disc brakes as well. And then I've got a basket on the front. And I tell you, every time I ride that to go and get a sandwich, it's terrifying. Like literally <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. What makes it so scary? I think it's, so it's my size. So whatever that works out to be 21 inch, but you're really high up, but then also the handlebars are really there. Mm. <laughs> so you're sort of riding along like that. And as soon as you start to go down any sort of hill, it just, you get the speed wobble straight away. Even with all the rake. Even, even with all the rake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when you start to, obviously it's not designed for disc brakes, but as soon as you grab the disc brakes, the thing just like gets all squirmy and it, it's just generally pretty terrifying. Did you put a disc brake on the front and the back or? Just on the back, just on yeah, the back. yeah, yeah. I don't have the brazing skills to put it on the front and right. get it, get it in the right place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Well, while we're still on the subject of Marin, what can you tell us about the Titanium FRS that came out around '93? Is that right? What can I tell you? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, well, it's pretty damn cool. It is cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think. Yeah, apologies to anyone that actually knows any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel like we need we need we to, really do need that disclaimer. In <laughs> we the need that. Um, <laughs> We're so sorry. <laughs> we need that. What's uh, what's Joe Rogan's guy? Jamie. Cool. Us. Bring it up, Jamie. Yeah, we need that. But no, yeah. I, th I think I think it was the first or one of the first um, production full suspension bikes. So whilst the stump jumper was kind of the first production like i guess mountain bike yeah. hardtail I, I think the titanium frs was the first and then it had obviously it was at the start of suspension so like this one behind you all we did was just take the suspension port forks from the front manitous and just put them on the back which is relatively easy to do i suppose mm -hmm. and it looks super cool yeah and it looks super cool <laughs> it, does yeah. As well, yeah. it really um, does yeah. how how well it worked i is up for debate but you guarantee 
you're going to see some gravel bikes looking like that in the not too distant future, right? <laughs> yeah. I wonder, yeah. like, technically, why it might not work. Like, is there a reason for it? I mean, obviously, like, you can manipulate all sorts, but if you wanted, like, a real simple suspension design, like, what a great sort of. Yeah. It's kind of the obvious thing to do, right? Probably a ton of friction in there, though, right? Probably is quite a lot. Yeah, I think definitely kinematics is not a phrase that was involved. Does it fit? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can we add it on? Yes, right. But I think, you know, like, in its era, there's not a single one of us that would not have kind of chopped off our arm to have one. 100%. I yeah. had a picture of it on my wall. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's just... Jürgen Bunnicke won, didn't he? World, World champion. World yeah. Champ yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Three. Yeah. Um, and I think, and this is definitely one to fact check, but I <laughs> think it was, <laughs> I think it was made by Lightspeed, who were already making titanium frames at uh, that point. Okay, and then obviously it had had an alloy back end on it with the Manitou. So was the titanium one sort of the first one that you you know that Marin bought out, and then they made a cheaper alloy one, or did they launch a whole range at once? Result. Oh, that's for me to answer, right? Honestly, fact check. Yeah, fact check. Fact. Um, honestly, I'm I'm not sure exactly kind of the timeline, sure. but what I do know is that around about that time there was also the Pine Mountain FRS, mm -hmm. which was the the Chromoly version of it, okay. which was a little bit more of an achievable price point, obviously. Yeah. And then round about '95, that's when it moved to to the alloy version here. Oh, okay, so you started off with a steel full set steel or, 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 or titanium yeah yeah, yeah. Titanium, so it was yeah. it was sort of similar time right. bit of overlap there very yeah. cool yeah yeah. yeah yeah but yeah the chrome molly was using the same air quote technology sure um with the with the manitou rear forks on the back oh nice can we just jump back to hardtails because i know how much yeah. you love a hardtail the yeti arc this is iconic right? isn't it you know like i don't know like my super old mountain bike history huge amount just because I don't know. I just don't. <laughs> but it's okay, Tom. It's all okay. right. I, I just didn't want to point out that I'm a little bit younger. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this old one again. But the Yeti Arc is like the bike that even I know is like one of the true sort of like incredibly iconic mountain bikes from the early days. You know, there's you know obviously Tomac with his drop bars and all that sort of jazz, but also just like the lines and the shape. You know, the wishbone rear stays just look beautiful with that sort of loop tail yeah yeah between the chainstay and the seat stay being effectively one well it's one loops you know and it's even now like i'm riding a yeti arc at the moment for a, for a bike test i'm doing and it's although it's carbon it's completely different but you can see sort of like the influence of the whole thing because the latest one came out just a couple of years ago didn't it's it like yeah. the 35th anniversary yeah. wasn't it is that right and they did like fancy paint jobs and all that sort of stuff but even previous to this the new one because the previous arc to that was I don't know if it was carbon or aloe or whether they had both, but it still had those loops. Mm. Um, arguably, I'd say it's better looking the, the previous generation to this one. But and when they, bought their, mm. when they bought their when they bought their first twenty nine out, I think it was the big top that that used yeah. that same yeah, loop on yeah, it yeah. as well. Which just that design language is just beautiful. Really, this is why we've got John here. Stuff like that, design, design language. language, exactly. No. Yeah, stuff not that we, not we, we never. Yeah. That's why he's got global in his title. Oh, You've got no chance. <laughs> but but how about we bring it back to this side of the pond? What about what was going on over here? Well, well, orange. You're looking at me, orange. orange. Yeah. So orange was another one of those brands, sort of that was created by what, some ex motocrossers, a bit like Hope, similar sort of vein. Yeah, kind of wanted wanted bikes that worked, and they kind of wanted an all rounder bike, 
all round bike, all, all round orange. <laughs> there you go. Is that? That's honestly. Is that yeah. real? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> O-range. O-range. A range and all round range. He has literally written how it gets, gets to it. It's very good. Very good. But they brought out the clockwork, which I guess was kind of their answer to, you know, the lights of the Etiarch and, and the stump jumper, but obviously a little bit later on. What do you know about orange, John? What do I know about orange? So I would say that <clears throat> that particular bike, the orange clockwork, was probably one of my favourite bikes of all time. I would go out. That that very first one, I would. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd, I would have loved one when I was a kid, mm. um, teenager. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> I wasn't in a situation to have one. And then I think they moved quite quickly onto the aluminium, didn't they? They went to, the, was it the E2, E3? They... Maybe the e Maybe the E2, yeah. E2, is that what it, yeah, I remember. And then that was kind of about the time that sort of my, some of my friends started getting an orange was when the aluminium ones came out. Yeah. But yeah, that clockwork is still, it's it's a little mm. bit like the Yeti in, in my eyes. It's just, it's just a classic bike. Yeah. That, yeah, it's it's just beautiful. Even, even today, if you had one, I think it would be. I think one of the things about the clockwork that made it sort of stand out a little bit was that, so the, apparently the guys who sort of founded founded the brand had always had sort of quite relaxed bikes, a bit like I guess the early clunkers, but obviously not exactly the same. But you know where everything's a little bit longer, a little bit slacker, and easier to ride. But sort of the tradition at the time for mountain bikes was that steep, roadie based XC bikes was what dominated, and and I think they those guys sort of kind of decided that that didn't really work for them. So they wanted to build a bike that was still fast. Um, but had this relaxed geometry, so they built it light, they built it a bit more relaxed and a bit more fun to ride, and sort of proving that you don't need to have basically a road bike with fat tyres. And it would have had mud clearance as well. Man mud Something clearance. we weren't really getting a whole lot of from yeah. some of the US brands, maybe. Yeah. That's that's a really good point. I completely forgot about the hard mud clearance thing. Would being you a remember teenager. how yeah. bad it used oh, to be? It was just, <laughs> and then all the various bits and pieces, aftermarket bits you could get to help you clear the mud, yeah. which was ultimately a, a failure in the bike design for the UK. <laughs> like was, the, the shark fin thing, yeah, scrape yeah. the mud away. Yeah, the yeah. winning your cassette or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. The crud claw. The crud claw. The crud claw, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah. All of those things. <laughs> when you were like debating, oh, maybe I should go for a narrower tyre just so it will fit through the stays in the winter. Not for any other reason, <laughs> purely for, the, for it to fit. Nothing else. But um, I suppose sort of around that time, there was also the likes of, and, and this is something that you were keen to add in, John. There's a couple of bikes from GT that you think were particularly cool and innovative. There were. There were. And I don't, I don't know what it was about GT of that era that appealed to me so much. Um, it was just something. It was the whole race team, you know, the fact that they were in that, that blue, yellow, red kind of baggy motocross mm. kit but riding an RTS or an S, uh, LTS, and obviously the STS was yep. a different thing again. But, you know, and then MBUK, they had, the, the team was on that. And mm -hmm. like that, it was obviously long before the internet. So the only place you saw bikes was in MBUK. And for me, it was just plastered in there. And, and I just, yeah, man, those bikes are just mind-blowingly cool to me of that era. Coil shocks. Coil shocks, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was a rock shocks, rear shock, yeah. wasn't it? And um, and then there was various different versions. Then there was the LTS DH, yeah. which you then had the Judy DH or the DHO on if you were really, really cool. Properly factory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually have a set of DHOs hanging up on my wall at home, which is one of my prized possessions, yeah. We were talking about um, Nico uh, in a different podcast, and um, I don't know if you remember when he was on early boxes. 
Yeah. Like yeah, prototype yeah, yeah, Broxers. Yeah. So still a single cram, but they ran longer stanchions. Yeah, so yeah, just poking the out the top. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. Yeah. I, if, just to go back to Nick, I'm sorry, I know it's about bikes, but Nick, I was last week, I was lucky enough to be in and around Cap Dye. Mm. And I rode mm. some of those trails on a modern bike, like a modern 29er bike. Mm. And whilst I was riding there, I could not help but think about how insanely good he is because I was struggling to ride him on a modern bike yeah and then just those pictures of him on his LTS just bombing down mm. some of those rocky trails I'm trying to pedal yeah and <laughs> it was just oh, insane like that man's got skill anyway sorry did you ride it you rode it at night we talked about it before right? yeah you rode it at night by accident so we did another in, in another sort of episode of the pod we talked about riding locations and, and one of those that came up was you know, pay DH, classic track where obviously even now teams are still going to go and test their bikes. But also, yeah, Cap Dine, myself and uh, Seb Stott, who's no longer with MBUK, RIP. Uh, we, uh, Don't make it sound like he's dead. <laughs> he's just got to think, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. He's all right. Yeah, it's fine. He's doing really well. <laughs> we, um, we, yeah, we ended up sort of riding pay DH and then Cap Dye um, over like a long day on, on some e-bikes. And yeah, we ended up Cap Dye DH at night. Which just a bit of a giggle, really. One handed with your phone torch. <laughs> yes, honestly, it was so sketch. Well, I suppose that brings us nicely onto mm, um, great segue. Very good. Uh, the Sun Radical Plus, yeah. right? Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 I mean, what a bike! Developed by well, designed by Max Commissar with the help of Olivia Bossard and yeah. Nico and Francois Gachet. That entire team had input. One, I don't know how many world titles races every world title, every world title in every category yeah. 100 times over um why do you reckon it was so iconic at that time especially um i think you know i think a lot of this is comes down to the rider and the riders or the racers understanding what they needed out of a bike and then the brand willing to listen and kind of create that bike around them. You know, if you you talk to someone like Nico, you know, he knows, he understands kind of uh, how to ride a bike. You know, he understands about the, your body position and all that kind of stuff. And then they were able to translate that into an actual bike for him to race on. And I think because it... It, maybe it was commercially available, but very minimally. Yeah. But because it wasn't really commercially available, they were able to just kind of make adjustments on the fly. And every race, he had a different version or an evolved version of that bike. It, I, I suppose my question to you, in, that, in your position now, if someone said, here's the marketing budget, this is how much, so the equivalent of whatever they were putting into that downhill team, what would you say? Because they must have been throwing hundreds yeah. of thousands at it. Well, I think I think we live in a different time now, where um, where the, we're kind of evolving, perhaps away from this thing where you don't need to win a race to sell a bike anymore, mm -hmm. um, and that's not how you communicate your brand. Well, for some brands, it is yeah. you know the ones that are focused on racing, obviously. But for a brand like ours, like that's not that's not how we communicate to potential customers. So for us. We, we would probably never go down that road. Uh, I mean, that being said, we are currently developing a downhill bike in public. So, you know, I, I can't. Yeah. So I've sort of just tripped over my own words there. But, but yeah, I think you get what I'm saying. Like in, yeah. in that time, it goes back to the whole, you know, MBUK thing. Like that was where you got your information once a month. Yeah. You would, that's where you found out who won 
the races from the month prior. Yeah. Um, that's where you saw your, so you, that was how you consumed all that information. Whereas nowadays, you know, you, you don't really need to even look at a race to, to understand what bikes doing what and yeah. what brands are coming forward. So, so yeah, I, sorry, I can't even remember the original question now, but well, I was just saying, it was almost like, I suppose now would it be financial suicide to throw that amount of money in marketing yes force behind it yeah it would, I, I think I mean, it would be because yeah. it was it was crazy to see the machine that they created back then right yeah with all the engineers and everyone kind of dedicated to just winning races as opposed to selling bikes i guess yeah and i mean i think there's this is definitely something that probably needs to be fact checked but i i think <laughs> <laughs> i think the towards the end of the 90s sun did go bankrupt or certainly wound down i think they've done that a couple of times yeah so you know there is definitely something to look at there and then obviously there's other companies who tried to go out on a limb and develop motocross bikes for example and that bankrupted them as well you know so i think yeah it's it's a bit of a dangerous game to play yeah um kind of going in a bit of a different direction now but um, I remember Paul Smith, who was working <laughs> on MBUK as, I guess he was the tech head at the time. Um, bit of a legend. Bit of a legend. Absolutely unbelievably my grumpy. hero. Oh, yeah. Unbelievably grumpy. Uh, incredible rider. Um, I mean, that guy, in terms of tech, that guy knew everything inside out. And the reason why I want to include this bike, it's the San Andreas Mountain Cycle, is purely because of him. Yeah. Um, Watching him razz it around a BMX track, jump it, make it look super cool. Do I mean that guy did everything on it? Yeah. Um, what what do we know about it? I mean, it was unusual, un, un, excuse me, an unusual bike to look at compared to pretty much everything else out there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I I think just to back up what you're saying, like I used to, yeah, Paul Smith. I used to open it and not look what the pros are doing. I would go and see what how how he was riding it and yeah i very much fell in love with that bike because of him mm. like you did so i think from memory it was developed by uh an aircraft engineer who used to race motocross I think something so, yeah. along those yeah. lines um robert Ries- risinger right i'll just take your word for it it wasn't he wasn't called robert mountain cycle so no another fact check. i mean we're gonna have to fact check the whole thing aren't we the whole <laughs> no, that's what the internet's for we we just we just make stuff up and then we try our hardest that gets uh, that gets <laughs> we, the engagement going doesn't it with people <laughs> as people hate us no, yeah you know, sure. just correct us um but yeah i mean that was a super cool bike upside down for oh and did it potentially have the first set of hydraulic disc brakes front pro and rear stops. pro stop is that yeah, what they were called i cool? think so yeah so i think he was bringing a lot of really interesting ideas from the motocross world um i'm pretty sure that he or that bike had the first so it had its own its own upside down fork yeah inverted single forks, crown yeah. yeah and i'm pretty sure that that had some sort of bolt through axle on it which that sounds m- about right yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously he coming from a motocross world, he understood about like the flex and, and whatnot and how that could be beneficial to, to tighten all that up. Cause it had a really cool sort of, um, single piece swing arm, didn't it? It was, yeah. it wasn't that sort of, he, he obviously hadn't just come from, we need to make some kind of different road bike that works off road. It was very much scrap all that. I'm going to start from a complete, you know, uh, clean sheet of paper yeah. and go from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, it was a super cool bike. I think 
Sean Sholmes March, I'm not sure how to say his name, but he mm. then started riding one um, with Zizek's forks on. Yes. And I don't, I don't remember what video that was, but there was some video of the era where he was just, he was riding what Sheep Hills dirt it? jumps on it. Yeah. And it was just, the bike went from being cool with Paul Smith to then like now is riding dirt jumps with yeah. triple clamp forks on. And just as a teenager, my mind was blown. I was, And those forks probably weren't the best, right? No, they, I, <laughs> They're I re- very leaky from my, from my recollection. I, yeah, no, I, I was uh, lucky slash unlucky enough to have a pair. Um, Did you have to do, I, I always saw the mod at races where people would basically cable tie like a rag yes. around the disc brake side to, <laughs> to, to soak up oil. Well, <laughs> As it was seeping from the wiper seals, incredible. it would it'd be there to try and catch it so it didn't go and contaminate the brake. <laughs> but, but the reason why you had to have the oil on the wiper seals was because it didn't work unless, <laughs> unless you were like... So it came with a little bottle of oil that you could then right. put on the wiper seals to get it working. It was uh, it was just a horrible thing. But, <laughs> but again, really iconic yeah, of totally. its era. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Speaking of iconic, I guess the next one is probably the Cannondale Raven. We right? should probably talk about that. I guess aesthetically, maybe not entirely dissimilar. If my if my no. memory of of the Andre of the mountain cycle is similar, but the yeah yeah the Ravens kind of got that sort of classic old school Cannondale look. And I think the reason why we sort of wanted to include it in this, it was it was inspired by you know the downhill bikes, but the Raven sort of was a bit more of an all round, a bit more of a trail cross country bike. But what made it interesting was you know Cannondale. Was that brand you alluded to a couple of minutes ago of, of brands that have tried things a bit differently and have gone gone bust a few times because they tried all sorts? But the the Raven had like this internal uh, skeleton, like a an alloy skeleton, uh, and then with a carbon outer skin. So the the alloy skeleton was to give it vertical sort of stiffness, and then the the carbon skin went on the outside to sort of cover up the internal tube, but also <laughs> to give it some theoretically lateral stiffness yeah. um and basically resulted in a pretty wild looking bike that was apparently incredibly noisy um as i guess sound just reverberated around it <laughs> maybe I, I and sadly i've never get never had the chance to ride one but i mean a, as a brand i mean fair play to cannondale they are always trying to push yeah. stuff they may mm. be not necessarily known for it well maybe they are on the roadside i don't know enough about it but on the mountain bike side those guys all the things they did, you know, downhill with the fulcrum and then the various different things like they did with, I mean, the headshot. Mm, yeah. Even, you know, the lefty, all of these things where they've explored it and, you know, you alluded to the motocross bike. Motocross bike, yeah. Um, fair, you know, fair play to those They've always guys. done their own thing. Like, yeah. They've always, like, ploughed their own furrow a little and it, bit. Was it Simon that electronic suspension stuff they had yeah oh, i don't remember that. that on the top of a lefty like electronic right. sort of yeah, yeah. stuff yeah so, yeah way ahead really of the time well. yeah i think the thing that always got me so i i came sort of into mountain biking when i was like 12 13 buying mbk and you would always see the you know like you were saying about the gt you know with their their colorways and their jerseys and all that sort of stuff for me it was the blue and yellow cannondale volvo cannondale team yeah. stuff that was so iconic for my sort of you know, entry into mountain biking and reading MBK and, and the other mags and just seeing these like really, you know, with you know the Ashtons on there and ah. Uh. And you look at what they did, you know, how they had the downhill team in order to develop the Jekyll and how they, you know, the latest version of yeah. their Enduro bike and how they went about, well, I guess just plowing all that money into it with yeah. two development riders, Matt Simmons and Kent Gallagher, just there to feed back racing at World Cup level. Mm in order to develop an enduro bike mm. um which is just incredible and and again it's one of those things where i'm sure from a financial 
perspective maybe doesn't make the most sense. But I mean, from a mountain bike nerd, it's the coolest <laughs> thing ever, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think especially in its in its heyday, like that was the the real pinnacle of factory racing was mm. Cannondale. You yeah. know, the everything that came along with that, and as you say, a bit like the sun. Every different every race, they had a different version mm. of of the downhill bike. Mm. It kind of evolved into something else, and a lot of the riders from Sun had actually moved on to Cannondale that mm. era as well, hadn't they? Yeah, so. that's a good point. Yeah. And I guess from like you know from a team point of view, having like a non-endemic Volvo sponsorship, you know, yeah. from yeah. a commercial point of view, that's pretty wild. Yeah, that's... and you don't see that these days. Either. No, no, unfortunately not. I, I, I wish, I wish we did because mm. it would allow a lot of the racers and and the riders and whatnot to kind of get the financial reward that they they deserve for the mm. hard work they're doing. One hundred percent. Um, back to that sort of iconic era in downhill, we can't really uh, not mention the intense M one. And I'm sure you've got some fond memories of this. I, this this is my absolute favorite bike of all time. Is it really? Yeah, hands down, like there's, I can't, yeah. Oh my god, I, I love this bike. Yeah. How many brands do you reckon must have just used a frame and rebadged it? We were trying to go through a few of them oh, last it's, week. It's but there must have been tons. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's everyone from Muddy Fox through to Mongoose through to Giant. Giant, Haro. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly couldn't keep up. But it's such an iconic bike. Like, ev everything about that bike is cool as fuck. <laughs> in, my, in my eyes. Yeah, totally. In my eyes. And then you have someone like, I mean, even in that era where it was deemed super uncool to wear a skin suit, and then Chris Kavarik absolutely destroys everyone at Fort William. Yeah, 14 what, seconds or something. 2002, is that right? I think it was. Something like that, yeah. I mean, that dude, I mean, it didn't matter, did it? It didn't matter if he was wearing a skin suit. He, he could have worn a tutu yeah. and it made it look cool. That mm. guy, that run was unreal. Yeah. It was so cool. and On flat pedals as well, obviously. On flat pedals. And then, you know, Chris helped bring through the likes of Sam Hill, who rode yeah. from, I think, in 2003 as a junior and won a world title. Did I, I, they, I didn't know that. So yeah. that bike just got even cooler. So, yeah, you have, you know, two of the most iconic flat pedal riders to have ever touched a mountain bike, both sort of cut their teeth. Wait, and Palmer, obviously yeah, Palmer. Palmer. We should yeah. have said to Palmer as well. Yeah. My God. So, yeah, in terms of cool points, you yeah. don't really get cooler. I mean, on the one side, you've got Sun, who kind of just won everything and were the most factory team out there, splashing the cash, had basically just massive bits of science attached to their bikes to make them work as well as they could. And on the other end, you had this sort of, American and Aussie contingent just going, whatever, we'll just ride as fast as we can, don't yeah. matter, and yeah. making it work. So this is a little bit of a personal story around the M1, but this just to give some context of how much I like that bike. When I, uh, I, I was living in Whistler in the early 2000s and one of my grandparents passed away and I got a little bit of inheritance and it was almost exactly enough to go and buy an M1. Oh. So that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I went and bought an M1. And yeah, and then I I was living in Whistler riding this M1, and like I I think that's when I kind of I'd peaked peaked <laughs> life. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that uh, in case my wife or kids are listening, but yeah, or, or yeah. your boss. Or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry, we're, we're still on the up. John's still on the up. <laughs> but yeah, and another thing about the M1 is that was kind of the introduction of the fifth element rear shock as well, uh, which yes. is quite an important shout. piece into kind of the evolution of full suspension. Yeah, so why, why do you reckon that is? Because I remember seeing them, they 
they sponsored Petey for a while, didn't they? St yeah. When Steve was on Orange in the early sort of 2000s. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's right. Yeah, Disney. yeah. So um, I think they came from, potentially they were on Harley Davidson's, or they came from the motocross okay. world, or sorry, motorbike world. Um, but they were kind of one of the first shocks that really ran a platform that worked on it. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the first coil shock that sort of really worked and had some sort of tunability to it as well. So, you know, for the guys that that mattered for, mm -hmm. they were able to make it work really, really well. And then obviously combined with, with the M1 sort of winning formula. The rest is history. The rest is history. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Now, Tom, I know uh, you're a big fan of cross country and oh, love it. 29ers yes yeah what can you tell us about the first well the first sort of mainstream 29er that I, I i guess everyone probably knows a little bit about but yeah i guess fisher's 29er yeah came out in 2000 oh well, the hi-fi 29ers was 2008 the first sort of mass market 29er full sus followed by I guess at that point, sibling brand Trek Superfly. So Gary Fish is one of those people, you know, it's one of those names that has or will pop up in this series a few times. You know, he's an iconic um, person in the mountain bike industry, both in terms of his aesthetic is quite uh, out there, but also like the influence. Great moustache. Great moustache. Mm -hmm. um, wild, wild glasses quite often. Yes. Um, but he was sort of, he really, uh, I guess he kind of worked out how to make 29ers Work. good and yeah, and, and work. Um, so the Hi-Fi 29 was, yeah, his uh, the first sort of big full-sus 29er Trail XC bike. And then um, he worked closely at the time, I guess, with Trek, who maybe did Trek own the Gary Fisher brand by that point? There was, I think at uh, that point they probably did. Probably did, yeah. yeah. Um, and they bought out the Superfly, you know, a short travel XC, uh, more sort of go fast, arse up, head down sort of bike, which really sort of made the most of, you know, when 29ers first came out, Really, is for a long time they were based around XC, and you know, that's what they were for. They were for yeah. going fast rather than for what they are now, which is holding speed and being a bit more gravity focused as well. They sort of focus themselves on the XC world. Yeah, in terms of standards, I guess it was quite a while for everything else to. I, I suppose in terms of the components, but also mm. the, understanding them. Yeah, the industry and obviously the the consumers to really buy into the concept do you think that's fair to say yeah i think so and i think one of the other things that he did it might have been a little bit earlier than this was he kind of was one of the first people to come up with the whole kind of longer longer top mm -hmm. tube shorter G2 stem G2, right? yes. what was it called it was well it evolved into g2 i think there was something pre-g2 yeah but I, I yeah i just vaguely remember seeing mm. someone on it and being like oh what's what's going on there type mm. situation but yeah yeah and and i guess this is a a lovely way to jump onto our next bike which was the foxy xr so as a tall person john i'm sure you can appreciate when mondraker said do you know what we need to do? We need to make our bikes way, way longer and our stems shorter and we'll have enough sizes that will fit even the tallest of people mm. out there. Um, I remember particularly well because Doddy, who was working here at the time, mm. all of a sudden was like, I've got a bike that fits. Oh my God, mm. it actually fits me. And, you know, look where he's working now. Mondraker yeah. bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm sure there's more reasons than just them having geometry <laughs> that fits in that he's there. But I mean, um, you know, Cesar Rojo, Fabian Burrell worked on this stuff tirelessly, and they. And what was quite interesting, it, although Fabian was, you know, a through and through downhill racer at the time, as was Cesar, 
they were working on the, I think it was a 140 mil travel platform on the Foxy, bringing it onto that sort of shorter travel trail bike at the time. They obviously had, you know, um, an inkling that it was going to work for the the mass market sort of yeah. trail rider. Um, um, they basically extended the front center of the bike, reduced, took any of that, um, any of that that they removed was taken out the stem. So the stem's got super short, I think 10 mil at the start and slowly has gone a bit longer. I think it went to zero, did it? Or have I just made that up? Uh, no, I think it went to 10 mil because they right. couldn't go the way with the mechanics of how it was okay. working. I, I think it couldn't get shorter and they dubbed it the center stem. Um, they launched that in 2013. I was lucky enough to ride it in 2011 in the really early phases and it was a very strange thing initially, but yeah. it, you could see the, the potential. But I guess... Do you think it's fair to say they were not necessarily like the pioneers, but they certainly um, start to shake stuff up enough? Yeah, I think for sure. And, and I think it it goes back to what we were saying about Sun before, where it's a case of somebody who, or some people who s so well understand what's going on between a rider and a bike when being ridden, that they were able to then take that and transpose it into some geometry decisions mm. and, and actually show how the the bike is affected un, under the way you know proper proper stance on the bike i suppose yeah and and i think that's that was the end result and yeah very 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 impressive bike and you i suppose you could argue that's what led to chris porter going down the route yeah. he went down with geometron or the i think it was the g16 first i think they had the g16 g15 was the 29 i think and then the g1 which is the bike they sort of stuck on stuck on yeah which again is a is a cool story chris really trying to push things and essentially yeah. create a a bike that fits him for his kind of riding style and he obviously sees the benefits for everyone almost no matter what the size yeah 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 no i, I think uh again you know i i think i'm right in saying that fabian was also involved in the development of that to a certain extent of the of the uh, i was gonna say nikolai the mojo no what are they doing? geometron sorry yeah sorry so <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think Fabian and Chris, they're very good friends, aren't they? So there's a, yes. there's a lot of back and forth there. And, and again, that's it's just people who really understand the physiology of a of a rider on the bike and therefore what, what does the bike need to do to make that symbiotic. Yeah, I mean, those guys, those guys together testing, I can imagine the days were very, very <laughs> long. I would imagine Fabian would want to test every single iteration, every single permutation you could have ever imagined of everything that they could produce. I would guess that they probably explored every setting possible before they were happy to go to bed. And I imagine Chris was probably very much up for that as well. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and then a long discussion. Long yes. discussions. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think one of the nice things about Jonathan, you know, obviously they've they've changed the... Maybe they haven't, like, whole-scale changed the mountain bike scene but they've had like they've played a significant part, yeah. I think, in in where mountain bikes have gone in terms of sort of shape and geometry. But I guess what still sets Geometron out from maybe a lot of other brands is their focus on things like customer service, reliability. You know, mm. these are you know they're very much a sort of you buy this bike and then you maybe never have to buy another bike again. Which I don't know. From I mean, I don't know my economics very well, but that doesn't necessarily sound like the best business policy. But As great in, for consumers. But great for consumers. You know, yeah. you can go and ring them up and they, they will help you set up your bike, your suspension. They will, you know, you can change all the little chips and everything if you want to develop. You know, they're, they're just very, yeah, customer focused, which 
It's a little bit different from 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 many. Do you reckon? Do you reckon the likes of Chris and Jomatron and Monrica had an influence on what you guys are doing at Marin? Yeah, I, I think um, in a roundabout way. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like they not really for two relatively small brands i would mm. say we're also a very small brand but i i think they somehow managed to get a really loud voice about what mm. they were doing and it, it took a while for everyone else to kind of catch up um and then everyone's kind of taken their own version of of that idea um i would say that geometron are kind of really gone to the perhaps the limit of what's yeah. what's mm. possible and then you know other brands have gone okay well we're going to take a bit of that and put it here and then a mm -hmm. bit of that bike and put it here and um so for us you know we do have very low standover height we do have relatively long reach yeah but compared to a geometron not long at all um but slack then head angles though slack head yeah. angles but then we we've, we've sort of remained with a, a shorter back end mm -hmm. on a lot of our bikes which you know there's definitely people who say that that's not ideal but for what we're trying to do we you know we feel it, it works yeah. so um very cool. Yeah, I think the Geometron is a really cool bike, but <clears throat> for if you look at a sales pyramid, you know who's who's buying that bike. It's very much the top of the sales pyramid. Yeah. Whereas for us, we're at the the bottom in the middle. Yeah, and so a lot of people who buy our bikes, they're going to um, you know Forest of Dean or Swinley or somewhere like that, and you don't need such extreme geometry yeah. to ride those places and have a fun time. Mm. But I guess they still get a taste of it, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Shall we um, wrap up this podcast with, um, I think it's the first time we, 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 this isn't like the seventh episode in the series, but it is the seventh one we've recorded. It is indeed. And we haven't really mentioned e-bikes. Not a whole lot. All, which is Not interesting in lot. itself, but obviously e-bikes are quite a new thing in the world of mountain biking, relatively speaking. I guess kind of been around six, seven years in terms of serious mountain biking. I remember testing bikes like Mondrakas, yeah, maybe seven, eight years ago, but they've kind of really taken off. Um, obviously over the last couple of years especially and it's probably fair to say that the turbo level from Specialized is possibly the most iconic or one of the more sort of accepted probably, interesting bikes probably the most accepted yeah is maybe how i would describe it just because um up to that point the it, when you rode an e-bike the early ones especially i think it's fair to say the geometry wasn't great you were mm. kind of just, there was one motor manufacturer that everyone kind of just had to buy into, build a bike around it. There were some issues maybe with sizing, geometry, bits and pieces around that. And it was quite a novel experience, mm. especially climbing. Mm. It was amazing in that sense. But the downhill experience was not what it is now. Yeah. Potentially, uh, I mean, it's got a lot better, right? Yeah. The turbo level was kind of like the first like slick looking didn't look like wildly different to your normal mountain bike and it sort of it just had like a much more polished finish in terms of both ride quality and aesthetic that every other e-bike was lacking at that point <laughs> almost oh my god <laughs> is, is it, you gotta make a statement now and again rob you know yeah yeah throw it out there <laughs> but um yeah i mean that's the thing isn't it, it it's one of those things where it's like in terms of integration and how they went about it, you're right. I think it probably was the slickest at that point. Uh, obviously, everyone's caught up mm. more or less, and and you know everything from kinematics, you know, suspension tunes, geometry being one of the most sort of fundamental bits. But that was maybe the bike that people sort of saw and went, yeah, 
it's not so different to a normal bike. Maybe we could ride it or maybe we won't shun our friends that have bought one. <laughs> what do you think, John? Oh, I don't know. I was, I was thinking about that as you were saying it. I, I, <laughs> he's wrong. That's what he's saying. No, no, you're no, wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. I think, I think, I, like, I think it is, it is a cool bike and for all the reasons you said, but I think the whole e-bike thing is, there's there's a there's a bigger there's a bigger discussion going on there about people kind of trying to get their heads around it yeah. and making it you know is it okay that I ride one because there's a bit of ego and mm. you know you've yeah. got to kind of lose a bit of your ego to to ride one in certain extent yeah so yeah I think, you know or, sorry that's that sounds wrong for I know what you mean though for but like, if you're like a there's a lot of purists out there right? yeah who the don't purists, wanna, yeah don't want to touch a bike that's going to help you yeah whereas for some people. It's an amazing thing to be able to, it's like a leveler, right? So yeah. if you've got a bunch of mates who have loads of time and are super fit, but you never get to ride with them, all of a sudden you have this tool which enables you to kind of get back some of that sort of social ride. Yeah, and and I think also for the purists, like they're slowly going, oh, all right, maybe after five years of seeing them, I will give one a go. Oh, whoa, look at that. Turns out it's really fun. And of course, you've got the, the trail access stuff in the US. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a way more complex thing than just how it looks. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I, maybe maybe we simplified it too much. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But um, it's uh, maybe that was the start of the, or maybe that was the sort of the, the turning point potentially as as someone as big as Specialized got behind them mm. and, and were really pumping them out and putting their, you know that there might behind it maybe that was the yeah potentially the turning point yeah maybe yeah i i think mm, let's agree to disagree oh, oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, i'm just it's such a it's such a it's such a big topic i just i don't i don't really know where i stand on it if i'm okay. completely honest i think yeah it's a cool bike and yeah there's some interesting stuff going on but i think Equally, if you were to sort of look around and dig it, you know, go to Eurobike around that time and see True. some of the some of the German e-bike brands, you know, what were they doing, or some of the German e-bike concept bikes. I mm. think there was a lot of really cool stuff happening in general. Um, yeah, that it's maybe for me anyway. It's quite hard to kind of pinpoint one bike that really stood out. Oh, yeah, that's that really my next question. Oh. So I was just about to ask, can you pinpoint a bike? <laughs> yeah, intense M one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With, with the, the battery, motor. yeah, with the battery. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, um, should we wrap it up here? Thanks, uh, thanks, John, for your insight into all of those bikes. It was it's great to have a uh, yeah, great to have all of that. And uh, yeah, thank th thanks, Rob, as well for your for your insight. Yeah. Mine less so. <laughs> I think we've got a sliding scale here of, of insight. <laughs> Down to An can read scale. notes on a spreadsheet. <laughs> thanks, Tom. <laughs> all right, we'll be back with another MBK podcast soon. Cheers. Cheers.